Don't Fear the Wasteland, an apocalyptic broadcast. Yes, Frankie, I remember to turn the microphone on this time. And yes, I do blame you because it's your equipment. Remember how I put you in charge of the radio? How do you manage to sign with an attitude? Fine. Fine. I'm talking. I'm talking. Hello, listener. Survivor. This is Sheriff coming to you from the last hurrah in South Alabama, a safe haven for those the Lord forgot. We're looking for survivors like you, people who've made it this far through perseverance and stubbornness. We could use your help here. We've been running the last broadcast like a beacon, but no one new has shown up yet. Maybe there's no one left. Maybe I'm shouting into nothing and the crawlers are all that's out there. There's definitely been an uptick in crawler sightings. We got a small group of them that keep trying the fence around the chicken coop. Trips chased them off twice now, even shot one, but I'll sleep better when they're all dealt with. But I'm not here to bemoan our problems. You've probably got plenty of your own. I'm here to recruit more bodies to the farm. We need people, can support a larger number than what we have. And Marge is a hell of a cook, especially if you're tired of outdated canned goods. Don't believe me? Well, come find out for yourself. Anyways, last I left you, I'd just buried Daddy and bandaged my blisters. Winter settled in and I passed the time in front of the fireplace watching the driveway and hoping for company. I celebrated my birthday mid-season alone with a little Jim Beam from the back of the pantry. When the silence became too much to bear, I blasted music in the kitchen and learned to make bread, punching my frustrations out in the dough. I'll be real honest. A couple times I thought about following Daddy into the year after, but I wasn't as brave as Mom so I wasted time making up conversations with imaginary people. I even tried my hand at writing the next great American novel, but the typewriter's ribbon ran out long before my ideas did. I didn't enjoy hand cramps enough to continue it in the notebook. No matter how many times Frankie asks, I ain't telling where I hit those pages. I'm embarrassed enough by the memory of it. Don't need anyone reading it and confirming my embarrassment. Winter blew itself out slowly. As the dogwood out front began to bloom, I knew spring was really here. My depression waned a bit with the warming weather, but I could never completely shake the thought that I was an orphan alone in the wasteland. Survived the best I could, though. Tried to keep busy. I did spend a few sleepless nights organizing and cleaning the house. I even dragged a mattress downstairs and set up shop in the aired-out master, because I liked being on the main floor. It felt safer. No one could sneak in without me hearing it. During my cleaning bouts, I found a safe in the closet. A post-it note on the outside told me the combination, and I was thankful for whatever it thought ahead. There was a lot of junk in there, thanks to the end of times. Farm deed, titles to vehicles, a lot of now-defunct cash. There were also newspaper clippings concerning the history of the last raw and the family that owned the farm. Uncle Jimmy got arrested once for running his truck into some pond while drunk. Sounded like an interesting family. Underneath everything were two journals with names on the covers. The red leather tome read Leonard Shelton third, while the pretty floral book had Shelby Shelton embossed on its front. Looked like I found the owners. I spent a lot of time reading and rereading those journals. Both wrote like they were having a conversation with their diary, and I was starved for human interaction. I learned that Mr. Shelton III inherited the farm from his father, and in less than a decade had more than a dozen contracts for his produce. He married Shelby in 1987, but didn't write much about her. Instead, Mr. Shelton's journal told of his farm endeavors and his dislike of the general public who came often for tours, something that had been Shelby's idea. They'd got frequent visits from schools in Alabama for field trips. 
The brochure begged them to come and see where their food was grown, and so they did, much to Shelby's delight, since she'd never had children and felt her life was much improved by the young visitors. Mr. Shelton was rather by humbug about it all, but in the interest of keeping the missus content, he didn't protest too much, at least not out loud. Shelby wrote a happy thanks. She'd started a rehab program for the women at the Wetumpkin Prison, offering room and board and a monthly stipend to women with nowhere else to go, in exchange for working at the farm. It was a way for them to get back on their feet. I learned about the staff that lived and worked at the last hurrah, and through Shelby I felt like I knew them. Her journal is what inspired me to keep the last hurrah up and running. I fell in love with the history and the farm and couldn't let it be another casualty of the wasteland. The farm's live-in handyman, Tripp, took an apprentice named Eva on from the rehab program and two years later they were married with Shelby's blessing, who seemed a little too eager for them to have children. Then the apocalypse came. Shelby's writing took on a sour tone. They nearly lost a barn in the burning, but luckily the victim fled towards the open field and the flames didn't spread. When the crawlers came, they lost two more people trying to prowl the rabid neighbors. Leonard and Tripp had to put them down. If I thought his journal's tone was harsh before, it was nothing compared to how he wrote after putting two bullets into his friends' heads. They buried them all out front, which explained the many graveyard. Slowly, the rest of the crew left the farm, heading for government-run camps that promised safety, food, and shelter. The last to leave were Eva, her sister Ashley, and Tripp. A year passed in silence. Leonard got no answer to his beacons sent out via his ham setup, and nothing came through the CB. He and Shelby had given up hope of seeing anyone ever again. Then a herd came through, and Shelby got bit by a crawler hiding in the chicken coop. In a strangely romantic gesture, Leonard decided he couldn't live without Shelby, and after setting the livestock free, he laid down in bed with his wife, and they took a shed load of sleeping pills. His last journal entry ended simply with goodbye. From the scratch marks in the bedroom, their method of suicide hadn't worked for Shelby. Wasn't in the journals, but I guess she turned. Eventually remember she had thumbs and gone out the window. About as brave as coyotes, unless they're in a herd, crawlers tend to avoid humans. I hadn't seen Shelby around the farm, so maybe she'd moved on. Now at this point, if you don't know about crawlers, you've been living under a rock. I'm only saying this to reiterate that you shouldn't go near one. After all, the point of my broadcast is to get you to the last hurrah in one piece. You can't do that if you get yourself at to death. And while you're at it, maybe you avoid any large groups of people. There's not a lot of us left anymore. The world's mostly empty from what I've seen. But if you do run into bandits, or God forbid Corinthians, steer clear. Bandits will kill you and take your stuff, which probably won't agree with you too much. Corinthians will talk until you want to die, damned religious freaks. Sure, I might be willing to buy into the whole fire show as being a kind of rapture, but it's been years. God's forgotten us. We're on our own now. After a winter alone with my thoughts and the Shelton's words, spring was a blessing. I tilled up the garden bed Shelby had started for the field trippers to play in and found seeds in the basement. I'd have peppers and tomatoes before too long. I found fishing gear in a closet and on one of my strolls came across a pond with catfish below the surface. Guess the Shelton's like fishing. The first night I fried up catfish, I nearly cried. It was so much better than canned beans and Spam. I kept myself busy any way I could and read a lot. Shelby kept a lot of the classics in the small library off the living room, and since it was either Shakespeare, Dickens, and Hemingway, or agricultural texts, I chose to read The Old Man in the Sea three times before I finally started in on grass-fed cattle and knew how to raise happy cows. 
Mid-season, after being alone for five months, I was outside running chicken wire around my garden beds to keep the rabbits out when dust stirred up down the drive. A rusted car trailer was pulled by a beat-up blue Chevy. In the cabin, a man and woman sat staring at the house. I dusted my hands on Shelby's jeans. I was close enough to her size, nothing a belt couldn't fix, and prepared for trouble. I kept Mr. Shelton's Ruger 380 on my hip at all times in case of crawlers, but I thought briefly of running in for a rifle. The man parked his truck in the front yard and got out slowly. He waved, and I returned the gesture. I'm friendly if you are, I told him, and he turned to say something to the woman. She heaved her very pregnant body from the cab. I met them halfway and we shook hands. Long story short, Ed and Martha Papiski and their two kids hiding in the truck bed ran a trade route from Mississippi to Georgia and back each spring and summer, and their normal route from one camp to another had a roadblock they couldn't get around, causing their detour down Route 109. It was pure luck that they'd sought shelter the last hurrah. Made me think I needed a sign of some sort out by the highway. Might get more passers-by. Might get more trouble, too. Maybe something to the effect of madman with rifles seeking trustworthy folk. Ed, Martha, and the two kids, Stevie and Pete, settled happily around my kitchen table while I made a meal for my stores. I think they were all a little surprised at my age. I was 20 and alone, not something they saw much of in the wasteland. According to them, only a few government camps were still going strong, even fewer wanted to trade goods. Some camps had been abandoned after it became clear that the government wasn't going to recover and the residents were running the show. Those camps, Ed and Martha had luck at, trading scavenged batteries and other goods for whatever the camps could spare. The Papiskis made it sound like they were more in the trade business to help their fellow man rather than to make a profit, which I had to admire. After eating, the Papiskis produced some chocolate for dessert. We traded stories and I drank in the human contact until I was giddy. In the end, I couldn't convince them to stay more than two days, as they wanted to reach a doctor in Georgia before Martha burst. There was a colony of survivors there. For a brief moment, I considered going with them, but I couldn't leave Daddy. We traded a bit, and they left, promising to return next year. I never saw the Papiskis again. One thing the Wasteland taught me is to never make a promise. God probably won't let you keep it. Daddy promised he'd be alright after a little rest. The Papiskis promised to come back. And I promised to make the last hurrah safe haven to those in need. Well, one out of three ain't bad. I remember the spring being pleasant, if not a little bit lonely, but... Wait. Frankie, did you see something move outside the window? What was that? Aw oh, shit, the crawlers are back. I... I gotta go, listener. Come find us. But remember, no funny business. Don't Fear the Wasteland is a story-driven podcast by Joey Hall, chronicling Sheriff's journey in the apocalypse and broadcast as a radio show from the last hurrah in Alabama. It's an oasis for survivors in the blasted remains of the old world, or Earth as we know it now. To learn more about the wasteland where Sheriff spends her days, check out don'tfearthewasteland.com and joeyhall.com. Thanks for listening.